So, Mark. Yes? A running thread in this week's movie is that our two main characters are working on establishing a joint Catholic-Jewish seniors hangout slash karaoke joint. You know, a normal thing that will definitely succeed in the high-price, high-rent world of Manhattan. I mean, I don't think it's like competing for customers. I think it is jointly run by these two tax-exempt religious institutions. <laughs> you know what? That is fair. Like, I think it is basically, you know, my reference point is Catholic, but like, it's like a church hall that is just somewhere else and targeted at old karaoke fans. It's so weird and specific. I mean, it's not totally out there in that it's part of that, it's like the tail end of that period where like karaoke was just this cool new thing and you're like, whoa, karaoke! Like, there's that scene 11 years earlier in When Harry Met Sally when karaoke is new enough that there's a whole scene just out of sharper image trying out a karaoke machine. I just, was this like, this was not the invention of karaoke, but the invention of the take-home karaoke machine that led to this, right? Because the concept of karaoke feels like it should be older than the 80s. Well, part of it is ready access to lyricless versions of popular songs, which digital music technology makes a lot easier to do. Yeah. And so, like, karaoke, of course, it's a Japanese word. It, like, comes out of, like, it comes to the U.S., in the 80s with that whole influx of like Japanese culture and technology. Oh, yeah. I guess I'm thinking of it also being older because of like, it's so big in Asia. So I was just like, it must be older, but it is, it does date to the 60s in Japan. Sure, that makes sense. Um, I, I hadn't even thought when we were talking about this before the episode that you have like Asian karaoke experiences, which I know is its own whole thing. I was just going to oh, ask yeah. you what your go-to karaoke song is. Because I don't think we've really done karaoke together. I don't think we have. So there's different... I It's like, it's two completely different experiences. Doing KTV and karaoke. Like in Singapore and China, karaoke, you rent out a room to yourself. And there's a TV in the room. It's like dark with funky lights and couches. And then people bring you booze. Like there's a button where you can call to order booze. And you just sing with your friends. So it's very different. It's like a bit safer, but also more embarrassing in a way because you're with people <laughs> that you see all the time or you're with strangers that you met that night when you got asked to dinner with a mutual friend's student and it turns out to be the student's grandfather's <laughs> birthday party and you end up at a karaoke place <laughs> with the student and her cousins and then your mutual friend. Mark, this is not a, like, abstract situation. <laughs> it is not. This is a thing that happened to me. I was in China, visiting Zoe, staying with her friend in Chengdu, and at the bookstore, we run into one of students who's like, oh, come to dinner with me tonight. We'll meet at my parents' apartment. And then we show up, and we talk to her parents for a while, and her parents are like, all right, let's get going. We have to go pick up Grandpa and Grandma. And then we, like, walk past Grandpa and Grandma's apartment, they meet us downstairs. We go to a restaurant. Then cousins and uncles and aunts all show up. And it's just like the grandfather's birthday party with his extended family and three random white people. <laughs> and then we went to hear. So what did you after. sing? Um, that night, I remember singing Telephone by Lady Gaga featuring Beyonce. Because uh, I have the whole Beyonce verse memorized. But my favorite karaoke song, of course, is 
dating back from our New Year's 2000 at-home karaoke machine. My favorite song is a four-year-old, Shania Twain's Man, I Feel Like a Woman. The thing I probably didn't really relate to as a four-year-old, but I was very into the song. But that is a crowd I believe it. Also, for what it's worth, you were not for that. <laughs> uh, in 2000? No. I would have been six. But I started okay. listening to the song when I was four. Oh, there we go. But then I did karaoke to the song in 2000. Then I did it again in 2018 at a karaoke bar the night before a wedding. And I was very successful in that rendition. That, it I'm gets the crowd going. delighted, and I hope to see it one day. What is your go-to? I know you're a big karaoke so, head. I love karaoke. It is one of the biggest bummers for me of this pandemic that karaoke is perhaps the single worst kind of activity to do. Like, <laughs> going to a crowded room where someone will, like, basically shout out at everybody. Wow. It's such a, a bad... shame. It, yeah. My favorite karaoke spot here in D.C. is a barbecue restaurant that in its basement hosts live band karaoke on Wednesday nights. I have never done live band. Starting at like 9 p.m. That intimidates me. It's like a terrible time for it because like everybody has to work the next day. So I really only do it like over the summer, which works for me and for nobody else. I just have to bully them into going to karaoke on a weeknight. (laughs) But the live band is so good because there's a lot of energy that comes from that. And this place, they don't let you get fancy. There's just, like, a book that the band says, like, we will play these songs, pick from this. And it's an extensive list, but whatever. That's beside the point. My go-to karaoke is always Elvis. I think Elvis is perfect karaoke because people are at least familiar with it, so it's fun for them to listen to. But it's also not a thing that most other people do for karaoke. So you're not singing a song that, like, they're going to hear three times that night. So my go-to is usually either Burn in Love or Jailhouse Rock. Both of which are great karaoke numbers. Well, something I just learned, if your go-to karaoke song is My Way by Frank Sinatra, do not sing it in the Philippines because there was a rash of murders that arose due to the singing of My Way in karaoke bars. Where? What are you reading? A Wikipedia page for karaoke because I was trying to figure out when it, like, started just that and i scrolled down and i saw the highlighted phrase my way killings so obviously i had to click on it obviously (laughs) um yeah so there's been about half a dozen incidents since 1998 in which uh, so like the singer is killed or someone is killed while it's being sung like is this a signal i think it's like some people say that it's like it was sung so much and people get so drunk when they're at karaoke bars that fights break out. But no Seems one bad. Really knows for sure. I don't know. That's a, that's a lot of people dead to be a coincidence. Yeah, apparently karaoke violence is not unheard of anywhere, including in the U.S. My thing, the biggest karaoke rule that people should observe is this is not a performance for you. Like, your job in karaoke is not to show us what a good singer you are your job is for people to have a good time uh last week we were talking about cruise ship experiences i was once on a cruise ship where they did karaoke and speaking of elvis these two like probably like 17 or 18 year old girls clearly sisters got up and sang can't help falling in love with you and it was the most over harmonized exhausting nonsense i have ever listened to and i was actually there with a like 
music teacher, like someone who works in a school. And this teacher was like, yeah, that is definitely like an arrangement that their chorus director made for a concert. And they're just like here showing it off. And I'm like, yeah, it's also boring. We're going to go sing all star and have a good time. Yeah. Don't be good at karaoke. Being good at karaoke is not being a good singer. Being good at karaoke is being fun. Exactly. And you know, it's not good at karaoke. In July 2013, an American was stabbed to death for refusing to stop singing at a karaoke bar in Krabi, Thailand. So stop singing when your turn is up. I genuinely thought you were going to say, you know what's not good at karaoke? Probably a bunch of elderly people at a weird Jewish Catholic joint community center. I thought that was going to be your transition. I thought about it, but then I read that someone was stabbed for not stopping singing karaoke. Wow. Uh, Anyway, I also love that the karaoke bar is in a closed down gay dance boutique or discotheque. In the movie, you mean? In the movie. Dance Boutique is a very specific DC reference. R.I.P. Town. Uh, Gay discotheque, as the Catholic priest says. But anyway, let's get the show on the road. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This, of course, is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining the least important issue facing today's world. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are taking a look at Edward Norton's directorial debut, the 2000 priest and rabbi walk into a bunch of places rom-com, Keeping the Faith. Now, this movie starts off on a really terrible note. And that note is, Edward Norton dyed his hair blonde and it's distressing and I hated it. Okay, so neither of us had watched this movie before. This was a listener request from our listener, Christina, who sent us an email at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. She sent that email like two years ago, maybe longer. That tracks. But we got to it. So you texted me a day or two ago, and you said that Edward Norton's blonde hair was a problem. And I was like, oh, whatever, he's the director. Like, he made that choice on some level, so that's weird. And then I was watching it this afternoon, and I was like, oh, right. Like, the first thing we see is... Edward Norton walking out of a bar with blonde hair, and it is alarming. I got used to it, but it was alarming. Yeah, you do get used to it, but it's still like, there's a chunk in the movie where he kind of disappears a little bit, where it focuses on Ben Stiller, Jenna Elfman, and then he shows up again, and then it it reset the horror for me. Oh, see, I did not have that problem. Once I got used to it, I was good. I did divide it over two days, so it may have just been the fact that I had I had a night to recover. That's probably it. You forgot about it. You repressed it. I did. So, as we said, this is Norton's directorial debut, just four years after his film debut in Primal Fear. And it's kind of a weird movie for him. Like, this is the first Edward Norton film of any kind that's not rated R. Oh, weird. Like, he was in Primal Fear, American History X, Fight Club, and then he's going to make his first movie. He actually had already optioned motherless brooklyn by then which would take him another 19 years to make oh my god but he had the opportunity to direct a very gentle rom-com about a priest and a rabbi who fall in love with the same woman he's like yeah i'll do that and star in it i mean it's not bad casting or anything he's good at it he's good at it it's just also very different from what i think of a, a normal edward norton role Especially in this period. I mean, yeah, he does a few more, I think, like, quiet roles, but... 
I also now mostly think of him as like a uh, Wes Anderson player. Sure. And this movie is very much not a Wes Anderson movie. No, but I would watch Wes Anderson's Keeping the Faith. Yeah, I mean, I would too. He doesn't really I think address it would religion work. ever in his movies, but I think it would work. Uh, I'm curious though, how did you, besides Edward Norton's hair, how did you feel about Keeping the Faith? Um, I enjoyed it. It wasn't my favorite. I don't know. I have a very high bar for straight romances. I'm just gonna be honest. It takes a lot. Um, I don't love just straight romance movies. I need more calm in my rom-coms than this one offered usually, but I enjoyed it. It's just, I like rom-coms, but I'm still not a full convert into the genre, I think. That's fair. Well, you know, I was going to look to see like what we had coming up that might persuade you. I think our next like straight rom-com is Valentine's Day with Gary Marshall. <laughs> I don't think that will push me in the direction of the rom-com. We're going to find out. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen any of those movies. I have only seen New Year's Eve. We're going to talk about this in like three weeks. We don't need to have this conversation now. I enjoyed this movie. I wish I had loved it more. I think it's a little shaggy. It is too long. It's too long. It's two hours and nine minutes. And I think it cannot sustain being interesting for quite that runtime. Which is a shame because I think the central performances, especially Edward Norton, are interesting. I think it's especially interesting that like, this is a romantic comedy that is about people trying to figure out how to be adults, but not in like a set it up young person way in a like people that are on the other side of 30 and are achieving their professional goals. Like they've put in time, they've like worked hard and now they're trying to figure out if that's what they want to keep doing with their lives. And I think it asks, especially for the two guys who really are the protagonists of the movie, Mm -hmm. it asks some questions about what that means for them. I think those questions are tilted more towards Edward Norton playing a Catholic priest where he's asking a lot of questions about like, wow, like, is this really a life I want to live? Do I want to commit to just being a priest and being celibate and all the stuff that goes with that? I think Ben Stiller doesn't get to go quite as deep in his position as this rabbi who's attracted to a Gentile woman. Like it doesn't seem like his issue ever is that like, he doesn't know how he feels about being with a non-Jewish person. It's just his concern about what everyone else would think. But so, like, I think that the tensions in this are much more interesting than in a lot of rom-coms we watch. Like, we watch so many rom-coms where it's, like, some contrived fight that causes issues in the relationships. And I appreciate that in this one, like, the issues are actual things that adults would have to wrestle with. I mean, some adults. Not a lot of us have to wrestle with being a Catholic priest falling in love. Sure, but you understand what I'm saying. (laughs) I know what I mean. I know what you mean. It, It is very real stakes in a movie instead of, like... I don't know, some of, I'm trying to think of some of the more contrived examples that we've seen, which, I mean, some very good movies have some very contrived fights. Oh, absolutely! I do like that this movie has real stakes. Right, like, everybody loses something if they go for the relationship. Yeah. Which I think, like, makes it much more interesting than just Will They, Won't They. And there are a lot of Will They, Won't They movies that I like. Yeah, but this one, there's, everyone has a, like... There's no win-win-win situation, except, I guess, for Ben Stiller at the end. Right, which is why I think it's a little too easy for him. Yeah, but yeah, Edward Norton would either have to, he has to lose the woman he loves or stop being a priest. Jenna Elfman, Anna, has to give up on a job promotion in order to stay in New York or give up on a relationship. And then 
Ben Stiller has to marry a woman who is now converting to Judaism, so all of his problems are solved. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a weird kind of deus ex at the end of the movie, that yeah. the secret classes Jenna Elfman has been taking are classes on Judaism with Eli Wallach. Yeah, he doesn't, the thing, it doesn't seem like the most conservative or, you know, orthodox of synagogues. <laughs> it certainly isn't anymore. Yeah, true. But I think they would accept the conversion, too. So it's like, they would still see him as married to a Jewish woman, so in the end, everything works out for Ben Stiller. Yeah. And he's got a cell phone now, so he's got that going for him, too. Yeah. This movie does make very good use of Ben Stiller's size. Like, the physical- small size? Yeah, his small size. His diminutive size. His diminutive size, because the physical comedy scenes of him against T-Bone at the end of the movie are funny. Yes, and you have to appreciate that Ben Stiller is willing to use his size like that, because yes. there are many short actors who star in the Mission Impossible franchise who are not willing to do that. That is, yeah. If Tom Cruise let himself be small, I think they could do some interesting things with Ethan Hunt. It would be even more cool. Watching this movie, as with all Ben Stiller movies, just reminded me of my mom's weird, like, almost irrational hatred of Ben Stiller. She refuses, Wait, why? She refuses to watch anything he's in. I don't really know why. She just doesn't like him as an actor, which I get. He's in a lot of bad movies. There has to be, like, something she watched that really turned her off. Yeah. I'm one- Maybe it was Meet the Parents or something. Because, I mean, he's so good in the Royal Tatted Bombs. This movie is coming, like, right as he is exploding as a movie star. It's two years after There's Something About Mary. It's the same year as Meet the Parents. And then Zoolander is the year after. Zoolander also makes good use of his small size. Speaking of this period, yeah. I think this is possibly the most 2000 movie that's ever been made. It's so pre-9-11. Right, but end of the 90s. Like, we have the karaoke sequence where, like, karaoke now has trickled down to the elderly. It's still a window where it's, like, a character point that someone has a cell phone. Like, you don't assume everyone has one. Yeah. It tells you, like, oh, this person's really into their job. And you've got, like... A cool basketball montage to show us that these guys are kind of cool coming off of, like, the 90s NBA culture. You have a nice sequence where Edward Norton and Ben Stiller meet up in black leather jackets, do a cool handshake as Smooth by Santana featuring Rob Thomas plays. Yeah, they really look like they could be leading service in the Matrix in those outfits. Here's the thing. That moment is good. Yes. It is. But the outfits look so much like the Matrix that it's kind of hilarious. I'm going to say, this is 2000. I think those characters loved the Matrix. I mean, it's a safe bet in 2000 that people liked the Matrix. (laughs) I suppose you're not wrong. This movie is also just so New York, too. Yeah, there's one shot that's not in Manhattan. There's one scene not in Manhattan, which is the company party for Jenna Elfman that's like, on a pier on the other side of the river. But you're staring at Manhattan the whole time. Right. And yeah, the whole movie's shot on location there, just like Motherless Brooklyn. I assume Motherless Brooklyn is shot in Brooklyn? I assume so. I, like everyone else, did not see Motherless Brooklyn. Oh, wow. Yeah, I just checked the box office because I was curious. Um... The closest I came to seeing Motherless Brooklyn was seeing a copy of the novel in a bookstore, and the novel had a big sticker on it that said soon to be a major motion picture and i tweeted saying major seems very generous here do you know how much it made 
I don't know, like $3 million? Uh, more than that. It was 18.5, but a $26 million budget. It made 18? I think that's probably internationally. It's 144 minutes long. So the first line on Wikipedia is always worldwide. Yeah. Uh, domestic, 9.2. International, 9.2. Okay. 9.2 is still better than I guessed. I think a year of pandemic box office has warped my perception. You know, that is fair. But Edward Norton, learn to make your movies shorter. Um, Keeping the Faith was not that kind of a flop, but it was, you know, a fine, like, early part of the year, you know, made money. It made $37 million, ultimately. It opened on April 14th, 2000, in third place, behind Rules of Engagement at number one, and 28 Days at number two, ahead of Aaron Brockovich and The Road to El Dorado. So, like, it did all right. People saw it, and then it went to blockbuster i guess actually i was not planning this as a transition but jenna elfman was nominated for a blockbuster entertainment award for this movie i enjoyed her in this movie i like jenna elfman jenna elfman walks into this movie in a black shirt speaking with her low jenna elfman voice and all i could think was that she was about to tell me that she could find out i was sick with just one drop of my blood Uh, she does have a bit of a elizabeth holmes vibe but she also it's interesting to see her as the cool businesswoman character. Because, I mean, her most famous role is as Dharma from Dharma and Greg. So this is, like, the full anti-Dharma. And this is right in the middle of her run on Dharma and Greg. My mom loved Dharma and Greg. I have seen at least a few I have episodes. never seen it. You know the premise, right? She's the, I like... I don't really. It's odd couple, but a marriage. She's, like... The woo, like, woo-woo, new age, 90s chick, and then married to an uptight man. All right. And then they get into shenanigans. Solid premise. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a network sitcom. Yes, it does. Um, Jenna Elfman's real-life husband, Bodie Elfman, plays Casanova, the guy in the other building who's always making out with his employee. I still, speaking of her entrance, though, it's still so weird seeing people at the gate. Like, I just... Every time it happens in a movie, I get so thrown off. Well, it's also like, I don't respond to it weirdly when I watch, like, Catch Me If You Can. And I'm like, sure, this is set in the 1960s. But when I watch the thing from 2000, it feels weird. Yes, because it is like, it's probably one of the last movies that has a scene at an airport gate. Yeah, and I had flown maybe twice before 9-11. So, like, I didn't really process the difference. Right, like, I... I remember very vaguely picking my dad up at the gate because I as like a young, young kid because I was looking at the planes out the window. But all of my major flight experience obviously takes place after 9-11. But so wait, is this this was Edward Norton's first directorial effort? Did he do yes, anything? He's only directed the two movies. OK, I wasn't sure. It's this and Motherless Brooklyn. Okay. Yes. He did uncredited writing on The Incredible Hulk. The one he was in. Yes, the 2008 one. According to some sources, it sounds like he wrote most of it. Oh, weird. But he is at least not the credited screenwriter. Is That's that's the, like, the weird one, right? I mean, I think it's not very good. The Ang Lee one is, like, weird interesting. Oh, so that's not this one. Ang Lee and Edward Norton are different ones. No, um... Who plays in the the Angley one? Um, it's the guy from Munich. Eric Bana. 
Right, it's Eric Bana. Yeah, so no, Norton is in The Incredible Hulk, the second film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe that many people have not seen. Yeah, I have not seen either. But it wasn't a big deal for Marvel that it flopped because it opened one month after Iron Man, which was still in theaters. So they were kind of like, eh, whatever. Right. Iron Man was such a big hit that it didn't matter. And then they just fully ignored it until they were like, oh, we we still have a contract with William Hurt? We can just make him show up and deliver exposition? All right. So then the antagonist of The Incredible Hulk has been in weirdly a lot of Marvel movies. Okay. But then they recast, so they could have used Edward Norton, but then they Right, decided... they recast him with Mark Ruffalo. Right. I mean, this is getting into a whole other thing. Like, Incredible Hulk, there was a lot of disagreement between Marvel and Edward Norton and uh, the director, Louis Leterrier. Leterrier had a allegedly, like, fairly different idea of what shape the movie should take, and Norton wanted that version and was not happy with the finished version of the movie. So, like, they could have forced him to stick to his contract and be in the Avengers, but it was one of those things where they were kind of like, it's better for everybody if we just go our separate ways. Yeah. Like, Norton all but refused to do press for Incredible Hulk. I mean, it sounds like it wasn't very good, so I kind of get it. It's not a great movie. I haven't watched it probably since 2014, so I can't speak to it too much, but... Do you include it when you do a Marvel movie watch-a-thon? I mean, that's the last time I did a, like, full-bore watch-a-thon. Okay. Because I, I remember you doing one. So, like, we did watch it that time, but I have not watched it since that day. Okay. Uh, all right. So, <laughs> keeping the faith. Keeping the faith. Should we talk about it? I think there's not yeah. a whole lot to say about this movie. It just kind of, like, came out, did okay, disappeared into the universe. There are people who really like it. I read a really nice piece that I'm going to put on our Twitter page that was put up for the 20th anniversary of the movie that was religious like clergy mostly rabbis talking about their feelings about the movie 20 years later do they like it mostly very positive oh. yeah mostly very positive they were like huh. yeah it's nice to see a movie that takes these questions seriously but is still light and enjoyable yeah i mean i think it's very respectful of their religious calling right yeah it the movie never questions whether being a rabbi or a priest or whatever is a good thing to do. It just questions whether it's the right thing for these guys. Which I think is an interesting question. Yeah. But at the heart of it, it is about a love triangle. And we are a love podcast. So every, We love the love. We love the love. So every week we break down the romantic plotline into five points to guide the conversation. So, Will, will you please take us to point numero uno? Okay. Before we get into this, just a little bit of background. Our three main characters, Edward Norton's a Catholic priest, Ben Stiller's a rabbi, Jenna Elfman is a tech lady who may or may not be Elizabeth Holmes. They were like childhood friends in middle school, then Jenna Elfman moved to California. They haven't heard from her because cell phones and the internet didn't exist. So it's just Stiller and Norton have been buddies as they separately joined their respective clergy. Um, It's also worth noting that this occurred to me kind of late in the movie. We should not necessarily take literally everything that we see because most of the movie that we're seeing is Edward Norton drunkenly telling it to a bartender. Oh, yeah. And so, like, there are some weird moments where it seems like Jenna Elfman is flirting with Norton and she later is like, no, I was not. And her behavior just simply doesn't make sense for somebody who's not flirting. But if it's Edward Norton retelling it and his perception of it, then it does make sense. So I think that's something we want to consider as we talk about all this. Oh, yeah. 
Because he is, he's trying to make himself look good. He's trying to make himself look good, but also he's explaining what he perceived. And he thought that she was into him. And so when he's describing those situations, he's going to be like, yeah, she was doing all this stuff. She was like up against me. We were like getting all touchy-feely. And I would believe that she was doing much less than what we were shown. But to him, who has not had any romantic engagements for a long time, it mm-hmm. seemed like quite a bit more. I mean, I think a, a, for him, a brief brush of the hand would be a charged moment. For her, it would not register. Exactly. So that's just something that I think we should acknowledge and we should consider as we talk about that part of this love triangle. Right. So the movie does start in media res with a drunken Edward Norton stumbling down the street and making his way into an Irish bar where he reveals his collar and proceeds to tell the story that we will begin to discuss. He reveals the collar a couple of times as like a move and I always enjoy it. Like when they're at Ken Lung's Radio Shack. The store is called like 2000s Audio or something, but they're trying to negotiate the price of a karaoke machine. And Norton just goes like, oh, I'm getting kind of hot in here, you know? And then unzips his jacket to show off his collar, like as a power play to try to get a lower price. I mean, it's a funny move. The reveal of the collar in most is done well. So anyway, as you said, so point number one, we are kicking off our romantic story because Jenna Elfman, Anna, is returning to New York for the first time in 15, 16 years. And so they're all going to meet up and have a nice time reconnecting. Yeah, I mean, I it's I always enjoy the idea of old friends getting back together. Okay, but I want to advance an idea in this, which is Anna is a bad lady. I think she's no good. I don't yeah. I mean, I think she does not romanticize her childhood like the two of them. That's true. But I think she is also like And again, you know, taking into account all of what I just said about perception in what we're being shown in the movie, I think she is kind of obnoxiously pushy, given that she's apparently going to be there for, like, months and months. Like, this movie might take place over six months, like, on insisting that they, like, ignore some of their normal stuff and, like, just go out and party a bunch, especially early on. Early on, she is the Jennifer Aniston character from 30 Rock. Yes, that is true. But I will say, I do also understand that impulse, because even if it's six months, when you first get there, you think, like, it's only six months, we have to make the most of it. I think I'm a bit more sympathetic towards her. I don't think she's, like, that terrible, but she is kind of annoying. She is a cog yeah, in the corporate machine. I just hope she gets her money out before the dot-com bubble bursts. Oh my god. Yeah, she's toast. She's She's got a very short window it's to make probably, her money. It's probably good that she doesn't take the San Francisco job because that job will not exist in six months. Um, anyway, Edward Norton, obviously, like, he's not dating anybody because he's a Catholic priest. But Jake is an unmarried rabbi, which means that every mother in his congregation is trying to get him to date their daughters. So he's been going on all kinds of uh, mostly bad dates. Like, he goes on this... Absolutely bizarre, but, like, wonderfully funny date with Lisa Edelstein, who is, like, a workout tape fiend. Oh, do you, uh, do these tapes? Are you kidding me? No. Are you kidding me? <laughs> no. These tapes are my life. Exercise is like a religion to me. No pun intended. <laughs> Feel my abs. Uh, she's so funny in this. I mostly know her as Cuddy from House, so it was really funny to see her in this ridiculous role. 
yeah, I mostly know her as the call girl from season one of The West Wing, where, again, she does not really get to be funny. So it's great to see her just going on about how these tapes are her life. Like I said, she's really into workout tapes. She has a bunch of them on her shelf covered up with fake spines of books. She also just apparently plays them on her TV. When Edward Norton goes to pick her up for a date, she is dressed for the date, but there is an exercise tape playing on her TV. I Maybe it's soothing for her. It's on mute. Yeah, it's weird. She's also a bad person. Like, she's the real bad person. Like, she yells at a homeless person and, like, tries to shove him. I do love when the date ends. She's trying to get Jake to go up with her. And he's like, no, I gotta go. I really don't want to do this. And finally, like, as she's pulling him out of the cabin, he's trying to stay in. She falls over and he calls, are you okay? As he's, like, leaping into the cab to drive away. Ugh. I just, like, sorry gone my train of thought just disappeared (laughs) okay so the other big thing that's happening as they're reconnecting is that at one point anna is walking around with edward norton whose character name is apparently brian i just like i did not get their character names i got anna and the men no until you said this yeah same for me so anna's walking around with brian in the park and she asks him a bunch of questions about being celibate Because she's like, ah, I could never do that. Like, tell me about that. And he's like, look, I find my job fulfilling. I recognize that people are attractive, but it's fine. I can live without having sex. He must be so used to that question. (laughs) Oh, he's definitely heard it a million times. Like, that is a a prepared answer. Yes. And it does have that sense. Like, you, you do have kind of the feeling that this is a bit of a rehearsed answer. Like, and it's true. He believes it, but it's also not something he's saying for the first time. Like, he even recognizes when she's... Starts off like, can I ask you a question? He's like, it's about the sex. Right. <laughs> Which, classic. So they're like reconnecting. They're getting to know about each other's lives. And that kind of takes us to point number two, which is where things are escalating. Anna is definitely flirting with Jake and maybe flirting with Brian, depending on how real anything we see is. And then they go on like a double date, but it's like, but two of them are not on a date. Chemistry is a funny thing. Are you speaking abstractly or specifically? So the key is Jake is like sick of being set up on all these dates through the synagogue. He just, he wants to meet someone organically, but politeness demands that he like go out at least once with all these daughters. And now he has been pressured into going on a date with Rachel Rose, who is a high powered ABC correspondent. Whose mother is played by Holland Taylor. Yes. Um, He doesn't want to go on the date. And so Brian and Anna are pushing him to do it. And Anna's like, what if we went along? Or I think maybe Jake invites them. Like, what if you guys were there? Mm. And suggests they fake it as a double date. And so, like, this is what the scene where we most have the idea that Anna is flirting with Brian. Where she's playing into the idea that they're on a date there. Like, her energy, at least as we see it, is, like, very horny. As she's, like, kissing him. They're, like, like, every time the camera returns to their side of the table. They're closer together until they're, like, practically on top of each other. Yeah. I really like your reading that this is, like, his memory of it, though. I think it's an interesting idea. I do choose to believe that she has a garter cell phone clip. I do believe that. That screams 2000 businesswoman. Look, Mark, there's nothing sexier than when a girl... You know, this is probably something that's different between the two of us, given our proclivities. Like, there's nothing sexier than when a woman is just kind of, like, slowly lifting up her skirt, and you see that cell phone clip right there. <laughs> I, it always just... They're rem- just like, oh, you know she knows how to get down to business. It just always reminds me of Isma's knife. The, like, <laughs> sure. the thing hidden in the garter. That is my only reference point for that 
I'm just saying, if you ever need to spice things up, strap that cell phone to your thigh. Oh my god. <laughs> so, the date is kind of awkward. Yes. Like, on paper, Rachel seems like she should be super interesting. I think she is weirdly dull. She's weirdly dull. I don't know if it's a performance issue, but it's also hilarious that the reason she leaves is she's like, the Iraqi foreign minister was just assassinated. Goodbye. I'm going to Baghdad. And then that's how they just write her out of the movie. Like, she just disappears. She has like a couple silent reaction shots in the synagogue after that. But that's it. And it is mentioned later on that she got back from Baghdad and had tried to call him for another date. Like, she really enjoyed the date. Like, he takes her home after the date and is like, do you want to come up? Like, I just got a pack, but we could hang out some more. Like, she wants this to continue. And he's like, no, I got to go. But actually, he doesn't go home. He goes to Anna's place and they have sex. Woo! Which brings us to point number three. Yeah, so point number three, Anna and Jake are kind of having a relationship. They don't say it. They don't tell anybody. They discuss whether they should tell Brian. And Jake basically says, well, no, if it's, like, not a big thing, then there's no need to make him feel weird about it. They're really trying for a friends with benefits situation. But the movie they had are. not they... come out yet. So obviously no one knew what that meant. They didn't know how to do it. Yeah, the rules hadn't been established. What are you doing here? I don't know. What am I doing here? So their idea is they'll just, like, keep it simple. And then meanwhile, we get this nice montage of, like, the three friends hanging out interspersed with... Jake and Anna having regular sex. Which feels weird. Yes, and they have this really weird fight when they go to the movies, and there are a bunch of people from his congregation there, and so he doesn't want them to know that he is dating this Gentile woman, and so he introduced, what does he call her, his buddy? Yeah, like an old pal, something like that. Yeah, and... Like, she tries to hold his hand during the movie, or, like, hold his finger, and he keeps, like, swatting her away. And then after it, they have this really strange fight where she's going, like, if we were together, I would be really upset with you right now. And he's like, well, if we were together, I would tell you that, like, I need to do this for my job, because my congregation is going to insist that I date a Jewish person. And she's like, well, if we were together, I would think that's pretty stupid, and you should, like, man up. And they're having this whole thing, and it seems like they're both really upset, but then she's like, it's a good thing we're not, and just laughs, and they, like, walk off and seem perfectly fine. I, I, yeah, I think the actors could have played a bit more tension. They kind of like shake it off too fast, but I get the impulse to just be like, well, I guess everything's fine. Ha ha ha. Right. The problem is it feels too simple. I don't know. In the midst of all this, Brian continues to think that Anna is flirting with him. He has a sex dream about her where they like go on a run and he's helping her stretch after and then they bang. Yeah. But this sort of secret relationship comes to a head in point number four. Right. When she invites Jake to her company's party, which scandalously is not in Manhattan. No, they are on a a dock. I thought it was a booze cruise because I could have sworn they mentioned that at some point, but I lost track. And they... No, it's definitely up here, but they're in like Brooklyn. It does look like a fun party, I gotta say. It looks like a great party. There's lots of alcohol flowing. Everyone's having fun. You could probably mingle with Stuart Bloomberg, who wrote this movie and plays a worker at the company. He was also Edward Norton's college roommate. Ah. I like how Jake mingles well. Yeah, it makes sense. He would have to. Right. And I think it's good that he's, like, having a good time hanging out. And it's, like, it shows them bonding, which I think is kind of, like, the reason they then fight. Because this brings us to a their biggest fight. I am in love with you, Jake. Yeah, I love you too. 
No. You are in love with me, you jerk. You just won't say it because you're scared of what it involves. Yes, I am. Yeah, me too. But I'm dealing with it because I'm overwhelmed by this feeling that I have for you. And I want to see if I can work it out. Great. How do I work it out? This movie does a good job of showing their chemistry and their shifting chemistry throughout their relationship. Like, Mm -hmm. it's easy to cheat with montages, and I think this movie really doesn't. Yeah. The montage work is pretty light in this one. Yeah. But as you say, there's a big fight here because at the party, she says she was just offered head of the tech division in San Francisco, which is the job she had been working towards. But she says she's thinking about saying no because she wants to stay in New York to continue her relationship with Jake. And he's like, why would you do that? We're not in a relationship. Right. And then this leads to a pretty big fight. But it's also a weird thing where, like, at first she like backs down really quickly where she's like, Oh no, like, yeah, of course. Why we're not oh, in a JK, relationship. JK. Why would we do that? I've been drinking tequila. And then she like downs two shots, throws the glasses over the side of the boat, drags him to dance. And they stay at the party. And like there are so many like weird, awkward shots of them in these group conversations, him especially clearly very uncomfortable. And this weird state just like keeps dragging on. Mm-hmm. Until then, all three of them go to dinner at Anne Bancroft's house. Ugh, Anne Bancroft. Because the great Anne Bancroft plays Ben Stiller's Great actress in her own right and wife of Mel Brooks. She's so good in this, too. Yeah, she is Ben Stiller's mom, and she has them over for dinner, and when Brian and Jake are, like, cleaning the dishes, she's like, is my son a good kisser? Oh, it's important to note that, according to Jake, his mom and his brother haven't talked in a long time because his brother married a Catholic woman. Yes. And so he's very nervous about not just his congregation, but his relationship with his mother in regards to his relationship with Anna. Right, he could lose his job and his family, he thinks. Yeah. But the question mark is, is he a good kisser? She basically is just like, what? No, what, what gives you that idea? And she's like, I know, give me the dirt. And that's when Anna tells her everything and starts crying. She's very upset. Yeah. And then they have their big fight. Okay. Yeah, because he's worried that she jeopardized his relationship with his mother. That's right. So he's like, how dare you have said any of that? And she's like, I'm in love with you. You are in love with me. Like, what's your problem? And he's like, I can't separate all these other aspects of my life from the fact that I'm attracted to you. So it's not easy for me to just say, like, well, forget about all that. Right. And so then she, you know, reacts. And I think it's fair on his part. I do think that he has more at stake. Again, I appreciate how, like, mature these fights are. Yes, I do. And they're understandable. It's like everyone comes in from an understandable angle, which is what makes it interesting. Yeah. I like that there's no, like, thrown under the bus other woman who does nothing wrong, but is just there as an obstacle. (laughs) There is no Bill Pullman in Sleepless in Seattle who had the audacity to have a food allergy. Right. So then she's crying and goes to Brian for comfort as her other friend. She shows up. She's like, Brian, there's something I have to tell you. And Brian's like... It's okay. I know. I'm in love with you, too. And then kisses her. Because he's had his own story going on where he's, like, wrestling with his attraction and he thinks she's attracted to him. And he, like, went to talk to Father Milos Foreman to be like, I don't know about this. And Milos Foreman is like, look, dude, like, I've been a priest for, like, 40 years. Yeah, every once in a while, I feel like I'm in love with somebody. You just got to choose if you're committed or not. Right. And so he's, he's like, I'm going to go for it. And kisses her and's like, I... No, you're in love with me. And he refuses to let her speak for too long. 
Like, it's very yes. annoying. Especially because this is before he is drinking. And then eventually she's able to get the truth out. And he gets very upset. Because he feels like she's been leading him on. So then she is basically alone. All three of them are kind of alone. They're not really engaging with each other. Brian goes out, like, gets hammered. And the next day he shows up to the synagogue. And he and Jake have, like, a screaming match about all of this. He, like punches jake too in the synagogue which is a lot there's a symmetry to it jake both gives and receives a punch because lisa edelstein insists on being punched to show off how strong her stomach muscles are i forgot about that she houdinis it but does not die right and then this is where he then goes to the bar because he's on like a over 24 hour bender it's like 48 hours yeah And so we catch up to the beginning of the movie. He and the bartender talk, and he basically comes to terms with it. And he goes to look for Jake to apologize. Yeah. So point number five is really just kind of the movie wrapping up. Brian has been working to reconcile with Jake and off screen with Anna. But Jake and Anna are just not really engaging with one another. They had this horrible fight. They had this fake relationship. She's going to go to San Francisco and have a tech job that won't exist before too long. But then this is where he tries to get into the building. Right. Brian convinces him, like, she is leaving. You should at least say goodbye. Like, come to some kind of terms. Like, I'm not saying you have to be in a relationship with her. But, but, like, this is a significant person in your life. Right. So he tries to go talk to her. He can't get up to her office because she's not answering her phone because there's a party in the conference room saying, like, bye. And... (laughs) And the uh, security guard for this New York office building takes his job way more seriously than any security guard in an office building I've ever encountered in my life. He is intense and very invested in keeping people from getting into the offices of a company. It's not clear what exactly her company does, but they have a tech division. So then he goes to a building with a more realistic level of security, I am sure, and ends up across the street. This is a building we've seen regularly because Anna is a voyeur who likes to watch other people get it on. She has a little pair of binoculars that she brings with her and she likes to stare into other buildings. This is a weird thing to do that we don't really engage with in the movie. But she's clearly very interested in secretly watching people. Which also makes me worry about her running a tech division. But one of the things she has consistently seen is this dude who they call Casanova aggressively having sex with... It seems like his secretary. Right. But then he finally gets her on the phone. And in classic... Right, he calls from Casanova's office. Right. And then in classic rom-com move, she puts him on speaker for the whole office to hear. Listen, I, I, I've been thinking about stuff, and, 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 and I just want you to know I'm sorry. And, and you were right. About what? About everything. About, about us, about me, especially about me. I've been acting like an idiot. So what are you saying, Jake? Yeah, what are you saying, Jake? I'm saying that I love you. I'm in love with you. And I've been waiting my whole life for someone like you, and I'm not going to let you go. No, she's on the phone. One of the other people in the office pushes Uh, the speakerphone button (laughs) so that they can all hear. Which, understandable. Honestly, the gossip is real. It's like almost on the level, but in a much less creepy way. Of the, like, never been kissed, everyone's sitting around in the office to watch the live stream. My god. Much less problematic, though. Much less problematic. 
this is a pretty fun, like, Richard Curtis-style gesture, where yeah. it's just like, he had to work hard, but it's a phone call. Right. I like, And it's not creepy in any way, which is nice. There's no pressure. Yeah. It's just a phone call. And he confesses his love for her. And she decides to stay. And, you know, not long after, we learn that she has secretly been taking Judaism classes from Eli Wallach. Yep. So it all works out. And then the three of them are friends again. Yay! All right, Will. So after watching all of Keeping the Faith, do you find the relationship believable? So I want to bring our scale into this, our, our zero to ten. I feel like this movie is like a five. Like, there are some really believable elements. I think it engages with all of their positions very realistically. Mm-hmm. But the circumstance itself is highly improbable. Yeah. It's kind of silly. Right. And, I mean, they were very clear about, like, this is the premise of a joke. Right. I don't think the movie needs to be believable. I don't think it's gunning for it. No, it is a silly thing that takes itself quite seriously, actually. Right. But not in a bad way. No, not at all. So, I agree. I think a five. Would you find any of our three leads dateable? I don't know. Like, for the most part, I feel like, for me, Brian would be the best. But I worry about how much of a bender he went on. And, like, the possible, like, extreme misperception that was going on here. I mean, I don't really have a interest in dating a Catholic priest, personally. Well, there's that, too. <laughs> so, I don't know. For me, Anna's the closest, but even she's kind of weird. The binoculars are Yeah, odd. I don't want to date Anna. Again, the binoculars are a red flag. Because, fine, like, you made your case about, like, she's just gotten into town. She wants to push for stuff. You combine that with, like, some of the more extreme stuff we saw with Brian might have been misperceived. The binoculars are a real red flag. And then Jake... I don't know what the Jewish equivalent of this is. He's got some, like, serious youth pastor energy that oh is a little God. concerning it's for me. It's a little too much. He does have youth pastor like, energy. Yeah. The fact that he's like, no, no, we need to, this is a happy song. It's like a song of joy, so we need it to sound joyful. So here's a surprise gospel choir to sing in our service. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's too, he's too much for me. Yes. Uh, he is a, a Jewish youth pastor, whatever that would be called. Do you think that Jake and Anna will stay together? Um, I think they probably will, especially if she converts to Judaism for him. Yeah, I think so. Which, I gotta say, really feels unearned. It happens way too early in their relationship. Unless she was, like, already, like, dipping her toe before she even moves to New York. Which there's no reason to believe. There's no reason to believe it, but it would be the only thing to make sense. Yeah. But I think they But, like, I guess if that's what's going on, then, sure, they'll stay together. Now, Mark, uh, if you did have to pick one person in this movie to date, who would it be? I mean, it's Anne Bancroft. Just because, (laughs) I mean, she's a nice mother who is played by Anne Bancroft, the legendary actress. Yeah. And there's not a lot of other people I'd be interested in. Yeah, I'm stuck again on the journalist date, Rachel, because, again... Like we said earlier, on paper, she seems like she should be a really interesting person to date. But she is just really awkward yeah. in every conversation. It's like she doesn't know how to talk about anything except the news. Um, I do like the owner of the bar. The bartender. He's nice, too. Oh, yeah. You know what? That He's probably my move. I like him a lot. He's a, a nice guy. He's got a good sense of humor. Good I love listener. when he 
realizes he's talking to a priest and like sits down and puts his towel around his neck to take confession. That was funny. I like him. All right. So, so yeah, that's going to be my answer. Many of the movies we cover have been adapted to Broadway musicals. Do you think there should be a Keeping the Faith musical? I'm really torn on this. Because on the one hand, we've said over and over again, the strength of this is how seriously this takes the issues as like a movie about adults. On the other hand, I think a zany musical version of this could be a lot of fun. I think they would be very different vibes, but I think this premise could make yes. for a good musical. Right, but it would very much be, it would be foregrounding the comedy. Yeah, it would be foregrounding the comedy. It would be elevating everything. It feels like a fun opportunity for adaptation. Like, how can you take the bones of this and make something fairly different? Yeah, but I think it could be interesting. I think the story could be told well on stage. Yeah, go for it. So, um, there you go. That was our conversation about keeping the faith. Christina, thank you, hopefully, for hanging in there. <laughs> it took us a while, but we got there. Oh my god. We are menaces in many ways. But next week, we'll be discussing another movie that might have someone who could With be considered a menace. Some I don't know. We're watching Face Off. Okay. Mark, you picked Face Off. I have never seen it. I haven't I'm seen it looking either. forward to it. All I know is John Travolta and Nicolas Cage switch faces. What more do you need? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a fantastic idea. It was also directed by John Woo. Yeah. Until then, you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or more movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. And we will try and get to them faster than two years. Yeah, we'll do our best. Uh all right, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show online. It really helps new listeners to find us and learn to love the love themselves. Last question, Mark. What is the best piece of dating advice you got from Keeping the Faith? <sighs> hmm. I think that if you're gonna do a grand romantic gesture, keep it simple and not too creepy. It does work. It does work. And I didn't feel like he was pushing her boundaries or doing anything like that. Yeah, that is good advice. Um, I'm going to say I really respect that when Jake is not interested in continuing a relationship with somebody, he, like, brings it to a close. Like, he's not, like, at the end of a date, he's like, yeah, I'll, like, go have sex with you. And then, like, and then say, nah, this doesn't work. Like, uh, basically what it is... I respect that he respects other people's time. You know, that actually is very good advice. Respect other people's time. Yeah. So there you go. Until next time, I'm a ginger. And I'm gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Bye. I never felt the desire to let music set me on fire. And I was saved. That's why I'm keeping the faith.